It's important that you accept the responsibility of life and the responsibility you have to be a good steward of the land, whether you're in the city or you're out here actually working with it. And you're always looking for better ways to do things. That's what outside experience helps. We all got blinders on. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, the Life in the Land series, where we hear from folks that live and work within the landscapes of Montana, gaining perspectives that can be applied globally on the realistic challenges, successes, and what's needed to move forward in a positive relationship with the land and one another in an ever-changing world. I'm your host, Lara Tomov. Since last summer, Stories for Action has been in the field, gathering interviews for a project titled Life in the Land. This project will result in a series of films and podcasts that hear from folks in different regions of Montana about the success of collaborative and locally-led work on the landscape, and improving connections amongst one another, as well as with the land to benefit the health of people and place. Stories for Action is producing this project in partnership with a working group from around the state that includes those working in watershed groups, agriculture, community development, ecosystem health, and everything in between. Our aim with Life in the Land is to show the nuance and complexities in the needs of healthy landscapes and communities, and to reinforce the importance of having a conversation with one another, truly listening, and creating relationship to work through our challenges. We aim to begin releasing the films and podcast episodes this April. But in the meantime, you can follow our Instagram and YouTube for excerpts from the interviews. Since we can only use a few minutes from each interview for the films, I've turned each interview into its own podcast episode, allowing you to take a deeper dive into certain topics. We'll be releasing a couple of those podcasts before the release of the films, so be sure to subscribe on Apple or Spotify to stay updated. Today's episode here is from Jim Hagenbarth, a cattle rancher in the Big Hole Valley of southwest Montana. Jim's family operation is on the Big Hole River near Glen, about 20 minutes north of the town of Dillon. Jim's also a founding member of the Big Hole Watershed Committee, which began as a working group of ranchers, anglers, and government agencies coming together to cooperatively steward the health of the Big Hole Watershed and all life that it supports, from microbes to humans. Now, if you're familiar with working landscapes of the West, perhaps you know something about what a feat it is to get these entities to work together. But today, the committee continues to bring those folks together to work out issues through communication. And it's grown as an entity that successfully secures funding and facilitates projects on the ground, from water development to stream restoration to collaborative drought management plans. The committee has become a real model for the West on what voluntary, locally-led conservation can look like. I spoke with Jim on the banks of the Big Hole River in the midst of towering cottonwood trees and waist-high grass. It was July of last summer, and while everything surrounding us in the valley was drought-parched prairie and haze from nearby wildfires, this riparian area was a lush oasis, with fawns sleeping in the shade nearby and a myriad of birds finding cool retreat. Jim told us that the current condition of this stretch of river is the result of decades of work that his family took on, managing it in a way that allows for a healthy floodplain, creating habitat for wildlife, reduced erosion, which benefits fish populations, and creates a sheltered place with dense forage for the cattle to winter. Through the use of electric fencing, the cattle stay clear of the river bottom itself. 
On this hot, smoky July afternoon, this lush shade was a welcome retreat for us as well. Uh, we're in the Big Hole Valley in southwestern Montana. It's one of the uh, free-flowing river uh, that starts up against the Idaho border and kind of makes a question mark down and then goes down and joins the uh, Beaverhead and, and to make the Jefferson down by Twin Bridges. There's not many people here, but we've become a big recreation area and people love it because uh, of the open space and generally the, the, uh, the ranchers here are pretty accommodating normally to their activities. And so this is our home. Our family's been here since about the 1870s. My grandfather, Hagenbarth, was one of the first white child born in Lemai County, Idaho, which is over on the salmon. And his, his father died in the mining camp and his mother came and set up a, a restaurant and a boarding house. And she met a freighter named Wood in 1870s uh, and remarried. And they moved to Bessemeroy in about 87 and brought in 12,000 head of sheep from Washington. Uh, my grandfather graduated uh, from college from Notre Dame and came back. So he uh, eventually expanded. In uh, 1902, my grandfather recognized the bracing pressure on the resources, especially in Idaho. And he was an engineer and he had the lower part of the Targhee, well, the Targhee from Seahaw to Island Park surveyed and he carried the survey to Teddy Roosevelt and had it set aside as a national park. They went broke in the 30s and the family had nothing. Dad, my father, Dave Hagenbarth, and he got a loan from a banker in Helena. Uh, he bought this place here back from a guy that bought it in the bankruptcy and started right here in about 1938. That's how we started. And uh, we've kept this together. Uh, my, my mother and my brother and I lost our mother in 2000 and we had to sell a ranch to satisfy the federal government. We thought we were protected and did a good job of the state planning, but with uh, people falling in love with the West and the, the big increase in land prices in 2000, we had to sell a ranch that we had owned for 60 years. Uh, and that's kind of a hard pill to swallow, but that's what you do if you want to survive. My son bought the cattle. My brother and I just managed the books and deal with the federal government. So this is home and uh, we're part of this area. Uh, you know, people, they've made a recreational playground out of the West, but none of them really understand. Uh, we have an obligation and a responsibility to uh, manage the resource. Uh, it's the only, it's where we get everything that we need is from the resource. So we're, we're part of this resource and that rock's gonna be there 10 million years after I'm gone. And what's important to remember, I have two bosses. One is mother nature in this earth. And the other is society that allows individuals to have proper, a package of property rights that allow them to manage parcels of ground in the West. I don't own this ground. I kinda, it, I, I'm a, a tenant. Uh, very few places in the world does an individual have the privilege, yet it's a huge, huge responsibility to manage this resource. Uh, we're public land ranchers, so we have to manage in our, all the intermingled ownerships. And it's a huge job because we have to manage based upon 
the fierce restrictions of, of that happen, happens to be the BLM generally because of the sage grass or the Forest Service because of the grizzly bear. As you drive through the West, you look around, there's a rancher, a public land rancher, taking care of that resource for you. And one of the things we have to do is to embrace our fellow citizens, invite them to share this with us based upon the norms that you have to follow in order to keep it healthy. And not many people understand that. And it's important that you accept the responsibility of life and the responsibility you have to be a good steward of the land, whether you're in the city or you're out here actually working with it. Can you share what that perspective is for you? You know, what are the things that you're looking for that are indicators for the health of the landscape? You know, just so we understand what that connection is for a rancher who you're out here every day of the year, you know, watching these things change, watching the natural systems ebb and flow. Can you give us a little insight into the perspective that you have when you come out on this landscape? Yeah, it's very difficult to walk out on a landscape unless you know the, the particulars of the landscape, uh, like the amount of precipitation, the kind of soils you have. So when I look at a range, when you have rangeland that's this old, along a river where there's thousands of buffalo uh, in, in pre-Columbian there were ten times the amount of Indians there were here when Lewis and Clark went through and I, they used the land. These trees weren't down here, they were up there. They, were, they burned them up there because if you had green grass early in the spring that's where the wildlife came. The tribes, if you shoot a, an elk or something, that's a pretty good trade-off on protein. And so it was, the landscape was important to them. It's important to us. What Jim is referring to here is the encroachment of conifer trees that over the years have come lower and lower down the mountainside, closer and closer to the river, pulling more of that water from the watershed. Historically, indigenous tribes that lived upon and utilized these lands frequently practiced traditional use of setting fires for a multitude of reasons, whether it be for grazing of wildlife, their own horses, camps, the activation of native plants to grow, which they utilized and gathered, as well as the overall health of the ecosystem. These regular burning practices in the Big Hole Valley consequently kept the tree line of the conifers much higher up than what is seen now in certain areas where it's encroaching on the river and therefore pulling more water from the river and the watershed. Hence the need for holistic approaches to address these extremely complex concepts. And as we see the landscape changing because society doesn't understand how it works, it's devastating. Everyone in America wants to protect stuff. And uh, that's the biggest mistake you can ever make. You can't get in that mode. You always have to be looking, how can I enhance what we have? Make it better. And you always gotta be going that way or you're gonna fail. Yeah, sage grouse is important. A grayling is important. But a sage grouse is not as important as a sagebrush ecosystem. I am concerned about the loss of the sagebrush ecosystem and its diversity because the perception that the sage grouse need old growth and uh, you don't want to do a damn thing with it, you want to protect it, and you're going to love it to death. And it's going to go through a vegetative threshold and, and go into 
annual grasses like cheatgrass or Medusa head or something like that. And then it takes 50 years to bring it back, maybe 100, depending on how much moisture you have. So one of the things we look at as we go out on the resource, our resources, and we're looking at how, how can we enhance the resource. And in this area, a lot of the country broke through a vegetative threshold. So we're trying to figure out how do we get it back to where we want it. So uh, what are we doing? We're working with the range resource lab out of Logan, Utah. And we're spraying in June the blue grama and it's really soddy so it holds the soil. And then you come back in November and or December, January, and you no-till seed it with some kind of a grass species that, that can live in this environment. There's not many of them. Most of them are wild rice. And then eventually your natives will come back in. We've learned that it's best to try to do something with the least amount of disturbance. Uh, we look at weeds and we've learned that uh, biocontrol, we, we spend a lot of money on herbicides, but biocontrol, those little bugs, I'll tell you, uh, you don't have to get them up, you don't have to pay them, no work comp, nothing. And they do one hell of a job. They don't take it out, but they manage it and they control it. So we have to look at that a lot more and, and get smart about managing the, the landscape to enhance it from species diversity, uh, grasses, forbs, uh, brush and timber, and also successional. What the, the Americans in, in modern society have lost is understanding how patient you have to be with Mother Nature. She's unbelievable and she can heal about everything. But you gotta be patient and you gotta help her out. That's what the rancher does on the landscape. And in general right now, the American people are just wanna come out here and recreate. And I don't blame them. But they have to understand how important the management of the resource is. And recreation is one of the uses on the resources, but only one. We need a working landscape. But we gotta start, quit protecting things and start enhancing things. And with all of those things being done in a balance, right? That keeps in mind the health of the ecosystem. Oh yeah, it has to be done ecologically sound. And you can do it that way. No, we have to wake up. We have to understand that this is a working landscape. If you don't keep it working, using the disturbance, in, like in grazing, often it's time control, uh, and putting it back to work. And, and it, it won't change our recreation or anything. And can you tell us a little bit about where we are here in this riparian area and some of the things that you and your family have done to manage it in a way that works to balance and work with the health of the ecosystem? Uh, what's important here, we used to calve in the wintertime here. And so the cows uh, would get out on the ice before this fence was in here and, and fall in. And uh, consequently, uh, you could hardly get them out and you'd lose your cattle. So the original intent was to build a fence and we got together with uh, national partners and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And uh, we designed a one wire fence uh, and we use a lot of electric fence on our outfit. And it's very friendly to the wildlife and to the fishermen. Uh, there's open access to this field uh, for anyone that wants to walk from the highway and it's not a hard walk. This Habitat here, this cottonwood habitat that you're looking at here is aged, it's old. We're cleaning it up, but you're not getting much regeneration. 
But where we release the river down below in that spring water, it generates cottonwoods. And so we have a lot of little cottonwoods over there. These cottonwood galleries are extremely important for wildlife, extremely important for shelter for our cattle. What's important about all this area in Glen is this is an underground reservoir. And so you can fill this all up with water and it comes out later in the year. The, the reservoir that we use to keep this river flowing is in the upper big hole, that whole big hole valley, because it closes down. And if those folks hadn't irrigated this spring, I wouldn't be surprised that this river wouldn't be dry right now because of the drought. What Jim is referring to here is also known as return flows. Jim's operation is located on the lower Big Hole River, but when landowners in the upper Big Hole River, a far distance upstream, use methods of irrigation called flood irrigation earlier on in the season, then that water seeps deep into the soil where it stays cool deep down in the earth, and then later on in the season it seeps out to create a return flow back into the river. This is not the case with all rivers, but because of extensive studies that were supported by the Big Hole Watershed Committee, they know that this does occur here. So now they can use that as a form of water management that helps later on in the year when there's less flow in the river, but especially in drought years like what they saw in 2021. What you also see on the Big Hole River in times of drought are things such as local fishing guides that put on self-imposed restrictions on their own fishing operations, as well as local ranchers holding back how much water they take for irrigation, even if their water rights allow them to take more. All of this is done voluntarily in order to benefit the health of the river and the watershed. We'll hear more about this in future episodes and in the Life in the Land film in which we're interviewing other members of the Big Hole Watershed Committee. And so society's going to have to understand how to manage their water a little better. And we can do a lot with water if we pay attention. Now, we're probably only taking half our water right uh, because the sub is up. And also, in response to the, the drought and, and the river flows dropping, as my, we're not particularly concerned about the fishermen. What we're concerned about are the little guys in the river, the microinvertebrates that no one pays attention to, because they're the ones that determine the health of the river, the health of the ecosystem. And society is just starting to wake up, and ranchers are starting to wake up, not only in the river, but in the soil. And if you go in there and turn that soil up, and affect those microorganisms down there, it has a huge effect on the production and the longevity of the soil and, and the interaction between your plants and grazing and the cattle and the manure. You have to have cattle involved to trump the litter and the manure and stuff in the, to, to feed those microorganisms. Uh, I can bring anyone out here and we can walk through this and we can explain what we're doing and they just fall over backwards because they said we were so misled and we truly didn't know, but we need to develop some ecosystem services if it's necessary. If these folks that are do a good job on the land can't make it, you're going to have to figure out some way to keep them there. You can't expect a person to stay on the ranch if you can't compensate him similar to what his peers make. Uh, but it's my obligation to protect the appreciation of the land and the value 
that my dad put into it and our family put into it, my mother put into it, my brother, for the generations down the road. Being a rancher is a huge responsibility. Being a citizen of the United States is a huge responsibility in regards to managing the resources in our country. Society today, they, they think we're big rich people that lock everything up and, and don't let anyone use the land. And that's going to be the case if they keep doing what they're doing because we're not going to be here. It's going to be owned by rich families. And the most valuable resource we have is right there, water. And we have to learn to manage it. Jim is mentioning things such as ecosystem services and the pressures that local ranchers are up against, which in the Big Hole Valley, you have an example of large, connected ecosystems that are still very much intact, which allows for this wealth of biodiversity and large, connected wildlife corridors that allow these species to thrive. Now, with local ranchers making very small profit margins, and especially the financial strains that occur in drought years, there's a lot of pressure from those who want to purchase these lands from local ranchers for various private developments, including subdivision or private residences or large corporate ownership of cattle ranches. These things would obviously have a huge impact on these connected landscapes and the health of the ecosystem and the watershed so Jim is mentioning things such as ecosystem services, which are the varied benefits that healthy ecosystems provide for life, such as air and water quality, pollination, food systems. The list goes on and on. It's basically everything that supports life on this planet. So Jim suggests this as possible solutions to keep local ranchers on the land and in business and finding ways to improve ranchers' typically thin profit margins if they are to adopt management practices that benefit the health of the greater ecosystem. There's a lot of conversation around this happening all over the world and a lot of it already being implemented in different ways. So I suggest if you want to take a deeper dive into that, look around online. There's lots of resources and different things happening in this conversation. Jim goes on to tell me about the Big Hole Watershed Committee and what the work of this collaborative group looks like on the Big Hole River. In 1995, we started the Big Hole Watershed Committee collaborating on how to manage the flows in this river. And in 88, we had a really bad drought and uh, the fish and game were gonna make it pretty tough on us. And so the legislature came and said, you know, you guys are gonna have to wake up. You have to do something. And so, uh, Senator Roscoe put together uh, a facilitator and we had a meeting in, in 95 and I was one of the founders. So we all got together, 50% were ranchers, the other 50% were fishermen and guides and business people and uh, we want every interest we could get because you make better decisions if you have a lot of interests. And uh, it's, it's consensus, which means that when you pass a resolution, everyone has to agree to it. But if you don't agree to it, if you say no, that means that doesn't go through. But you have to explain why you're saying no. And so through that process, either you convince the group you're right, or possibly the group convince you that you're wrong if you're a realist and are looking at and using common sense. But if you run into an issue that you can't solve, you drop it because you don't want to destroy your group. And 
Our collaborative is mature. It takes about three years to get a good collaborative going so you know the personalities and you know uh, the people in it and you know how they think and you trust each other. And every once in a while, it's happened to me, it's happened to everyone in our group, you stand up and make an ass out of yourself uh, on an issue and the rest of us just <laughs> sit back and say, hmm, I wonder when my time's gonna come. And so uh, they're wonderful groups, but they take a lot of time. Uh, but what they do create is understanding the most important people on this, in this whole thing are the guides, because they can either say to the fishermen, the dam ranchers are drying this river up, or they can say to the fishermen, this is an unbelievably dry year, and we're all working together, and the ranchers are contributing water, and we're slowing down our fishing, and this is a working system, and there's some good groups that are working on this. It's important that you donate to them so we can do what we're doing. And so we work with all the agencies. We have a, a wonderful uh, executive named Pedro Marquez, and uh, he's running faster than we can trot, trying to get so many things done. And all sorts of things, water quality, beaver mimicry, uh, working on head gates. Uh, they helped us put in with a grant, a state grant, uh, oh, probably 20 years ago. Uh, two big head gates uh, that would allow us to open and close our flows coming out of the river. Before then, you, you would hope you could get the gate open and didn't ever close it because you didn't know if you'd get it open again. And it cost about $210,000. We got a grant for 100 and we paid 110 and got her done. We've been trying to do that for 40 years. But because of the Big Hole Watershed Committee, in collaboration with all the agencies, we've got her done. Our collaborators are huge but they're hard and you have to give and take. And can you tell me some of the challenges of this type of collaborative work? You know, it's, it's not always smooth sailing. For other people that may want to start their own collaborative work in their region, or perhaps are already a part of this work and have hit walls that can be discouraging, what are some of the challenges that you and your group have faced and the ways that you have moved through these challenges? Getting started is, is, is probably the greatest challenge you have. Getting people interested in becoming involved in collaboratives. Uh, first of all, you have to have an issue. Uh, you have to be careful that the issue isn't too big. A collaborative on a river is just right because, you know, we manage anything that has uh, to do with the watershed. And that starts from the top of the mountain to where the river ends or goes into another river. So you have to have a goal of what you want to do. And then you have to bring in the people that you think have interest. And it doesn't make any difference who they are. Because uh, every person's uh, insight is important. And, but you have to balance it based upon the resources. Uh, say for instance, if you have some mines around, have those folks, ranchers, uh, guides, uh, recreation. And so if you can get them all together, but to get started, it's probably really important to have a good facilitator. To, to, get, to let the people work through their personalities and get through all their prejudices in a way that it doesn't turn them off. Because the best way to stop a conversation is say no. And it's, you're done. Your mind shuts down and you're done. And so 
how you started is, is huge. And, and you know, uh, those of us that have been around a long time, we've learned how to get back up. Uh, in life, you're going to fall down lots. Collaboratives are going to fall down. But you have to have the right people in there to, to generate the energy to get them back up. And then you have to have funding to keep them going. And so you have to have a good funding mechanism. Uh, and you don't, you don't get that unless you do something. And so you have to have uh, do goals that means things to people, mean things to the landscape. Especially it's important to report back to the people that funded you with, with data and a study showing the positive impacts of what you've done. And, and you're always looking for better ways to do things. Uh, why is it important to have someone new? I had a friend one time that had a, a garbage business. And every time it snowed, it took him an hour longer because he had to put on his chains. He hired a college kid. And he told the college kid about it. it. Took the college kid two hours to do it. The next day, the college kid came in right on time. It snowed another half foot. And he, Joe said, what the hell are you doing? You're back here. Didn't you pick up any garbage? He says, no, Joe. I went the other way so I could drive down the hill instead of up it. And so those, that's what outside experience helps. We all got blinders on. Uh, in, in solving problems, there is no perfect solution and you pick the best alternative. If you have a perfect solution, you, you don't even look at it because you haven't looked at it well enough. You have to get people to collaborate to give a little here and a little there, and the idea is to solve problems. Uh, we're so poor in America of solving problems, it's unbelievable. So, but collaboratives can do it because uh, you have everyone's aspect and uh, uh, different points of view. One of the things on this river that's important is this is the queen of the resource. And so our idea is let's protect this jewel that we have. And if you want to come, fine, come. But don't build down here. Find a place like up on the bench and don't destroy what's making it important. And so, and that's really, really hard to get done. And it takes some zoning, which no one likes because it takes away private property rights. So you just have to, you have to work together and you gotta understand how important what we're doing really is. Collaboratives are great, they're hard. I think it's only the only way we're gonna get out of this mess because with a collaborative, if people join, uh, then they truly understand what's going on. I'm in a, a, a Targi a National Forest Collaborative trying to figure out how to manage some of the trees uh, in uh, the Target National Forest, just trying to get people together and, and we have the Greater Yellowstone Coalition and Idaho Conservation League and trying to get them to understand what we're doing. And so collaboratives are, are they're hard but they're effective and I think there's probably one of the best tools we can use to educate America about uh, the ecology and the natural resource issues in the West. Can you tell me about what we're seeing this year with the drought and what does that mean for you and for ranchers in general? We started seeing this coming last year and we only had two inches of moisture during the growing season on 18,000 acres of um, our spring range. And when we calve, my son owns the cows and he pushes the 
pretty sharp pencil, and you don't very often make money with pears, cows and calves, because uh, the cow eats all the year, all year long, and you're only selling a 600-pound calf. But anyway, we saw this coming last spring. So the grass you grow this spring is the grass you use next March when you put those cows out on the range. So we knew we were going to have that. We lost 18,000 acres of spring range. That's a huge cost. We had that problem, and then we didn't have any snow, so we knew this river was going to be low. When you have hot, hot weather like you have now, you're not going to get the grass to grow when it's this hot. So we're, we're looking at this year. He, he has all his yearlings, and there's a lot of them. Uh, he's going to have to deliver a month early. So he'll lose 60 pounds on him at a buck 50 a pound. Multiply that times 4,500. You're looking at $400,000. And then, see, he buys hay because we're not farmers, and you can buy better quality hay cheaper than you can raise it because of the cost of equipment and all that stuff. Hay that he usually pays $125 for delivered here might be 250. So he'll have to decide if he can buy the $250 hay and put it into calves for his yearling program to harvest the grass next year. And so you have state leases. I got to pay it whether we graze it or not. It's had a huge impact and there's a lot of little operators around here that are probably carrying a lot of debt. And some of them have had to sell their cattle because uh, you just didn't get the growth this year. And, and be quite frank, I don't know if they're going to make it. Uh, it's very serious. And, uh, but it's part of nature, and this isn't the first drought I've been through. Uh, 66 was bad, 88 was bad. But we put a lot of money and work into uh, wells and water systems. And if you lose your water, it doesn't make any difference how much land you have. It's huge. And it could have an impact of who's going to own these ranches down the road. And one of the problems with these small ranches, and there's a lot of them, and they make up a big part of the rural west, is that the family works outside the ranch. And they work their guts out every day. And then they've got to come home and work at night. And it's hard to keep a, a marriage together and keep your family there. And quite often you don't pay your kids. Well, if you don't pay your kids, they're not going to come back. So it's a catch-22. Mm. And on that, do you mind speaking to the importance of adapting? You know very well that natural systems are always changing and adapting themselves, and that's really the rule to species survival, right? Just your perspective on this concept and the importance of adapting and not just saying, well, that's the way we've always done it as an excuse to keep doing it that way. You know, this importance of adapting as systems change, not just for ranchers, but for humans in general, no matter what your place or line of work may be. You got to adapt to everything. Uh, one of the problems with some of the older ranches, most of the old men have died off, or old women. Um, but some of the kids say, want to continue to do what their family did, and that's a mistake. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities out there. Uh, and I'm not saying you have to continue to run livestock. Uh, you might tap into the recreation 
you know, or you might do multiple things. But if you do multiple things, you got to understand uh, people, understand what they want, give them what they want. And no sense raising something if they don't want it because you're not going to sell it to them. The one thing about the range livestock and is that they convert forage into protein and fiber for the American people. And they're being used as a tool to cause the service that's necessary to keep the range resource healthy. Uh, but you have to adapt. And you better do your homework, and that's an important word. If you don't adapt, you're not gonna survive. Thank you to Jim Hagenbarth for sharing your story with us. You can find out more about the Big Hole Watershed Committee, which meets every third Wednesday of the month at the Grange Hall in Divide, Montana, at bhwc.org. Stay tuned for the Life in the Land film episode that focuses on the Big Hole Valley and the work of the Watershed Committee, as well as the accompanying podcast episodes that speak to further angles on this work. The Life in the Land project is supported by the following donors, Bioregions International, Bird Conservancy of the Rockies, the Wilberforce Foundation, World Wildlife Fund, Winnet Aces, Northern Great Plains Joint Venture, Crocus Foundation, Heart of the Rockies, the Montana Watershed Coordination Council, Ranchers Stewardship Alliance, Lower Clark Fork Watershed Group, the Big Hole Watershed Committee, and additional support from Bill Long and Billy Miller, Marina Weatherly, Joan and Cliff Montaigne, The Milton Ranch, Jim Scott, Gary Witted, Arthur Lubis, Rodney Fry, and Chris Boyer. All of Stories for Action's work and the Life in the Land Project is fully supported by tax-deductible donations. If you'd like to support this work, you can do so through our website at storiesforaction.org. Thank you so much for helping us in bringing these stories to the public. Thank you all so much for listening. This podcast was recorded on the homelands of the Salish, Kalispe, Shoshone, Bannock, Blackfeet, Absalaga, and many other indigenous peoples that interacted with and stewarded the land. Special thanks to Peyton Butler for editing assistance on this episode. Be sure to share these episodes with others and subscribe to hear more stories that create connections around a thriving planet. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and Twitter at Stories Number 4 Action. Learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can browse inspiring stories from others or submit your own for us to share, as well as learn more about the Life in the Land Project. Thank you so much for being a part of our community, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all. <laughs>